0: That has been given to me is the better sacrifice. And in this chapter 9, which has been very clearly and with proper emphasis and reverence read to us, contains the verse 23. And there we read, it was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. and given to understand that the Greek word that lies beneath our English word sacrifices there is in the singular. So we're looking at the the sacrifice. The better sacrifice. We're looking at Calvary. Now I want to take as my text. To verse 12 of chapter 9. Of Hebrews. <clears throat> where we read. Neither by the blood of goats. And calves. But by his own blood. He entered. In once. Into the holy place. Having. Obtained. Eternal redemption for us the word better that I read to you a moment or two ago in the verse 23 carries the meaning of more excellent it stems from a word that means strength or power And Calvary is the excellent, all-powerful sacrifice whereby the redeemed of God were delivered for all eternity from the consequences of their sin. Calvary's sacrifice, I'd like to make just a couple of comments by way of introduction. Calvary's sacrifice was fitted. Look at the verse 9 of this chapter. 9. And there we read, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, and I do remember a discussion with a very dear friend of mine, but who had been brought up amongst the brethren, and they had a dispensational view of Old Testament sacrifices but I remember having a discussion just after breakfast when devotions were taking place around the table and I had heard him in his prayers speak in such a fashion as to indicate he believed that the blood of the Levitical sacrifices paid for the sins of the Old Testament saints and I wasn't quite sure that I had picked him up Right on this and I, I mentioned this and I said you know those sacrifices paid for no sins, made no atonement the virtue of those sacrifices was that God ordained them God ordained them as a means of teaching his people that it was by sacrifice that sins would be cleansed away and also that they were representative. They presented a picture of the coming one who would, by his death, pay for all sins. And there was virtue, I suppose, in the giving of the the making of the sacrifices, insomuch as it was an obedience to God. And when you obey God and do what He requires of you, there's a blessing. And there would have been, therefore, the blessing upon those who brought the Old Testament sacrifices in faith, believing that they pictured the one who would come one day. But my dear friend was, well, became very irate at the very idea that I did not understand that the blood shed at the altars of Israel in years gone by atoned for the sins of Israel and it got so hot that and I was young at the time and I didn't feel it proper and he was an elderly gentleman I didn't feel it proper that I took the matter too far I registered with him what I thought was right and how I thought he was wrong and then I let it be but I just want to emphasize that the Bible teaches that no man got into heaven as a result of the blood of a bullock or a ram or a a natural lamb. No, they were but pictures. But the Calvary was the sacrifice. It met all the requirements. Of the needs of the sinner, it was a fitted. It fitted the need of the sinner. It was functional, as I say. It did all that laws required, all that the Old Testament sacrifices hinted at, suggested, pictured, represented. Calvary performed all those that were all the. <coughs> the functions that were represented in the times, performed those to the very fullness. And also I'd say that Calvary's <coughs> sacrifice was fruitful. Verse 12 tells us, and that's our text, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having <coughs> obtained having obtained eternal redemption for us there comes fruit from that tree and the fruit of Calvary's tree the place of Christ's suffering and bloodshed was the obtaining of eternal redemption for us that's the way of salvation I was showing Mr. Tom's Um, yesterday a video sent to me by a a young free Presbyterian minister who comes from England and who was back in England joining with his family to protest against the idolatry of Walsingham and he did a very good video you heard him preaching somewhat uh, all these fools that were marching along in granny nightgowns and looking entirely hypocritical with all their their pious poses, and I hate popery. I was brought up in the midst of it. I have seen what it what it represents. I know its spirit. It is not the spirit that is presented in the smiling faces of the cardinals and the archbishops and the sweet honeyed words that they speak. And with which many English people are beguiled. I know popery for what it is a system of murder and terror and wickedness and defiance against God. It always has been and it always will be. We have lived cheek by jowl with popery and we know it for what it is. Well, as I showed the video to Mr. Toms, uh, you could hear in the background this young preacher, Daniel Henderson was his name, crying out, crying out. What is the means of atonement? What is the sacrifice that saves us from sin? The people all there they thought what they were doing was, were, was paying for their sins their candle carrying their singing their bead counting and their incense containers swinging and smoking and all was the means they thought of obtaining salvation all it is is a blasphemy that God hates God hates because it's an alternative it's put in the place of what Jesus did at Calvary. Oh, it's only from Calvary that there flows eternal redemption. Now, I want to consider some matters about Calvary sacrifice and to try and emphasize what it is that makes it a better and a more excellent sacrifice than all of the Old Testament types and shadows. Why is it the better sacrifice? Well, the first point I'd like to leave with you, and I do trust that God will bless you and open our hearts and minds to these truths and and cause them just to bubble up like a fountain within our souls. And refresh us. The saviour's sacrifice was most glorious. Most glorious. And my basis for saying that is this. First of all, it must have been most glorious. Because of the many representations and types of it. That God presented to his people. In Old Testament times think about it one animal sacrifice was not enough to present a picture a full picture of the glorious salvation that Christ would work out at Calvary's cross but instead as we read the old testament we see such a catalog of pictures children love pictures i suppose we all love pictures that's why the bible is for children because it's a picture book god has printed god has authored written and it's it, it's full of pictures Pictures of Christ, particularly Christ at Calvary. There were animals aplenty that were used to teach the Jews about Calvary. Animals aplenty. Different kinds of animals, all of which had specific requirements that had to be fulfilled I'm not, I can't go, go into all details of those things other than to point it out and trust that the Lord will lead you and your own thoughts into a consideration of these things the lamb, the kids, the bullocks, the heifers all with specific marks that represented Calvary because no one animal, no matter how perfect and without imperfections that animal was, it couldn't reflect all the beauties and glories of Calvary. So God has this tremendous variety of animals that employed. But not only that, there are numerous pictures presented in the Bible amongst the people of God that sets forth Calvary. Again, I just couldn't go into it all. But we have men who were in themselves by the grace of God, I have to say. By the grace of God. Because the grace of God at work in you, Christian, will produce a likeness to Christ. And if people don't see something of the Lord Jesus in you, then you need to think about that. You need to think about that. From the moment you're it, you bear the image of the heaven. You're born again from heaven. And as we have all at some time or other gazed into the little face of a newborn... And the process begins, Oh, I think she or he is like mommy, like daddy. Oh, no, I can see the old granda there and all the rest of it. Well, from the moment we're born, there should be a likeness of Christ. And we should grow in grace. And in the likeness of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus. And there is recorded in the scriptures... Incidents involving men like Moses. Moses actually was led by the Holy Ghost to speak of the Lord Jesus as a man like him. That that, that, that's an enviable statement to be able to make honestly and humbly. What a what a An honor was bestowed upon Moses when he, by the Holy Ghost, was able to say to to the people of Israel, There will come a man, one day he will rise, like me. And I think specifically he was referring to his own teaching ministry, etc., etc. But there was reflected in Moses a picture of the Lord Jesus. And the labors of Moses the toils of Moses, the ministry of Moses, it all pointed to the Savior and to Calvary. We think of Samuel. Again, a man in whom was seen the grace of God. I love that that incident when he offers the lamb. And as soon as he begins to offer the Lamb, the Philistines began to mount an attack. And that has ever been the case, men and women, wherever there's a people who begin to exalt the Lamb, a people who begin to look to Calvary, a people who begin to proclaim that Calvary is all sufficient, the Philistine will attack. The Philistine will attack. We think of David every boy and girl is not too long in a Sabbath school until they hear the story of David and Goliath and yet what a picture that is what a picture that is of Calvary what a picture of Calvary and I'll say this to you it's also a picture of the second coming do you know why? Because if you read carefully, first Samuel 17, you'll discover that when David slew Goliath, it was his second visit to the camp of Israel. Second visit. He had been once, returned to his father, then his father sent him back to see how Israel fared. He's coming back again one day. Hallelujah. And he's coming back to slay the Antichrist, the Goliath that will arise in this age. It's all there. It's all there. These were pictures then of Calvary, the Redeemer, and the work that he would undertake. And they were painted by God. Not one incident, not one example was enough. There had to be a multitude. And listen, you will never uncover all of the pictures of Christ in your lifetime. Never. There will always be something new. Always be something that you never noticed before. The Bible is filled with Christ. And filled with Calvary. So then, this multiplicity of representations of Calvary that are seen in the Old Testament. In the plain statements regarding the sacrifices, in the almost incidental events in the lives of many of God's people, all of them were pointing to Calvary. God wanted you to see it one way or another. There are advertisers who who believe very much in putting up their advert here, there, and everywhere. Believing that you will eventually take note of it. Well, let me tell you, God, not for the same motives, of course, but God, in order that he might give every opportunity to men and women to understand about the cross, has filled the Bible with pictures and representatives, representations. Of it. Then again, the Saviour's sacrifice was most glorious because of the solemn ceremonies and the manner in which the Old Testament work, uh, worship was conducted. I'm sure, foolishly, there are times when we read the Old Testament instructions given by Moses, when the Mosaic uh, period was introduced, and the Mosaic worship began. I'm sure there are times we have said to ourselves, how could Aaron remember all the things he had to do? I've said that. Think of the washings. Think of the garments he had to put on and put on in a certain order and take off again. Never never just leave them all. Then think of what was involved in the actual sacrifices. Think of what was involved in the Day of Atonement. So important were they a death sentence hung over anyone who did it improperly all of these things brethren and sisters underline underscore how glorious an event was Calvary how glorious an event we think of the incident with Uzzah First Chronicles chapter 13 verses 9 and 10 do you remember Uzzah Transporting the ark, putting it on very improperly, putting it on an ice cart. That's what the Philistines had also thought. That's the way they thought the ark should be. And they were in fear of the ark because of their experiences. I'll let you look it up for yourself. But they were in fear of the ark and they saw that. Uh, there was a need for them to act with reverence toward it and so they did as man's thoughts guided them they said we'll, we'll, we'll put it on a new card one that hasn't been put to any other use That's, that would appear to be the right thing and also did something similar man's thinking listen to me there is no place in the worship of God From man's thinking. No place. The professing church today. Is filled. Filled. From you go through the door. Until you go out. With man's innovations. Man's innovations. Oh I think it would be a good idea. If instead of. Singing those old hymns. why, Why don't we have some nice. Jolly choruses. Written. In the modern mode, the hymns we sing, in which I believe God is honored, are hymns usually born in days of revival. Hymns that God has honored. But any light, frivolous nonsense that springs from man's notions in the same fountain as the new cart came. no we're not allowed to innovate we're to do only what God says Uzzah and he was a good man I want to say this he was a good man we'll see him in heaven I believe that he was a good man a kind man dare I say a godly man and when the ark of the covenant shook on the cart he was anxious for it and he put forth his hands to hold it in a loving fashion, but it's wrong, even out of love, to do that which is contrary to God's law. And as I paid the price, David was angry. You know, David. You read about it. David was angry. Why did this happen? It happened, David, because you organised the removal of the ark contrary to God's law. The next time, when they got back to doing it, the Levites were there to carry it. As God had ordained. Oh, how we need a reformation among the professing people of God and a getting back to the Bible and a throwing out of all these things that have come in in recent times. Scandalous, wicked things that offend the God of heaven. But the solemn nature of the Old Testament worship, emphasizing the fact that the high priest if he if he transgressed any of the requirements god struck him dead serves to underline for us what a glorious glorious sacrifice was represented by all the sacrifices and uh, and the ordinances and the activities of the old testament priesthood oh we must never speak casually we ne- must never treat casually Calvary never I'll tell you a wee story I probably tell it every year I come here My fr- the same friend that I mentioned earlier who we had a bit of a dispute with regards to dispensational teaching but he was a man who loved the Lord wouldn't want anyone to f- form any other opinion than that. He loved the Lord. Old fashioned Ulster man who went to America in the early 20s, got saved over there, and he became linked with the Free Presbyterian Church. Indeed, he became a pioneer of a witness, the Free Presbyterian witness that began on the outskirts of Philadelphia and is now centered in Malvern, a township likewise not that far from Philadelphia. And Old Bob was in a drugstore where there was the facility of photocopying anything you wanted. That was common in the drugstores or the chemists, as we would call them, in the U.S. And he was in to photocopy a a little bulletin that he would give out the next day in their fellowship. And as he lifted the lid, he saw that someone had left what it was they were copying. So he put it aside, especially when he saw there was some religious content to it. Put it aside thinking well they might come in. So he started to photocopy his and in came a guy in a real rush. You didn't you didn't see a leaflet there? Oh yeah, here it is. Oh, thank you, he says. And Bob says, Are you a Christian? And the man said, Oh yeah, Jesus is a great guy. And old Bob said, No, he's not. He's the Lord of glory. And instantly that man was smitten. And he said, you're right, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have spoken of the Lord like that. But that's that's the way today. The notion is that if we speak in this sort of casual fashion, it will bring more people in, gather in the young people. How can it be possible by demeaning the Lord Jesus, we can attract more people to Him? Where can that be? He said, if I be lifted up, I shall draw all men to me. No, we must not in any way move from the holy observance and reverence for the worship of God because we are dealing with something of great glory. It was a most glorious sacrifice then You will see the impact that God wanted the Old Testament sacrifices to have upon the people in that they were brought constantly before the people. Every day started with a sacrifice and continued and concluded with the sacrifice there were monthly (coughs) markings of sacrifices there was a period in the autumn time of the year you read about it in uh, Numbers chapter 29 when day after day there was not a sacrifice but numerous sacrifices all of which was an underlining and an underscoring and an impressing upon his people the glorious nature of what it was the Messiah would suffer and endure when he would come in his day. These types, these sacrifices ordained of God were absolutely central to the life of Israel. Israel. I mentioned every day every year every month every day they were brought before the people after I got saved I, I, I hadn't a gospel background I, all the hymns that I began to learn were all new to me and I remember singing so often to myself heading to work walking to work I had lost my driving license through being drunk in charge of a vehicle just about six months before I was converted, Till I was walking, and one hymn that I sung, and sung with joy, was Jesus, keep me near the cross, there a precious fountain, free to all, free to all. And that's what God wants. That's illustrated for us. In the whole pattern of the Old Testament. Sacrifices and the rituals God ordained by which he was to be worshipped. Let me take you to a second point. The Savior's sacrifice of himself was has, rather, has purchased countless riches for his people. It's a glorious sacrifice because of what has come of it. What has sprung out of it. (sighs) Exodus 12, and the verses 7 and 8, one, one of those pictures I was talking about, and sometimes I watch uh, a program that deals with the subject of antiques. And very often I, I have heard someone speaking very excitedly about some old masterpiece, old painting. And they'll say, do, do you see that? Did you notice that? And, and look down here. And they're pointing out all the little faces and figures and features and, that you wouldn't really take any notice at the first glance. And it's only when you stand. And maybe that's why in art galleries you do feel fine people standing before masterpieces. I'm not talking about those things with representations of eyes where ears ought to be and all the rest of it. No, I'm talking about masterpieces. People do stand, because there's so much there to be noticed. And likewise, when you come to a painting like that in Exodus chapter 12, the verses 7 and 8, And they shall take of the blood, and strike it on the two side posts, and on the upper door post of the houses. It wasn't to be trampled on. It wasn't to be put on the doorstep. either side and above wherein they shall eat and they shall eat the flesh in the night roast with fire and with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it It wasn't just a sacrifice that covered them from the judgment but it was a sacrifice that fed them it was a sacrifice that gave them the stamina and the strength to start out of Egypt. I don't know why people don't like lamb as a meat. I've heard people, oh, I can't eat too Too What? You wouldn't make a good Israelite because they ate so many lambs and rejoiced in them. But the point is that I am making is that from Calvary there has come countless riches into the lives of the people of God. The merits of Christ's blood have brought us back to God to dwell forever in His presence. Think of that. That's where we're going tonight. Why should we take an interest in the affairs of this world to the degree that is beyond that which God requires us to have in the affairs of this world? There's Christians who get so bogged down that they, they forget their Christians, they forget their heavenly home. Yet Calvary's cross was all about taking us back out of sin and into the presence of God forever and forever. Revelation 22. You know, you, you hardly need to look at them. These are verses familiar to the people of God. Revelation chapter 22, the verses 3 and 4. And there shall be no more curse But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be in their their foreheads. They shall see his face. Think of that. I'm sure you, like me, have often thought of the privileges of the apostles and disciples and the followers of Christ 2,000 years ago who were able to look into the face of the Lord Jesus. But whatever privilege they had, it's nothing compared to the privilege that we will have. They looked into the face of the Lord Jesus and His glory was veiled. And we cannot look in honesty. We always look with prejudice. We look at things and we don't see what someone else looking at the same thing sees. Because our eyes are prejudiced by us. And I'm sure that those people who looked at the Lord Jesus did not see him. as he was and ought to have been seen. I'll tell you, Mr. and Mrs. Toms and my wife and I and uh, Dr. John Douglas went on a little visit to Israel, seems an age ago, although what we saw there has lived on. And it brought back to me how <clears throat> in the 80s I went to Israel it was more of a political visit but we were able to take in some of the scriptural sites and that included the tomb of the Lord Jesus and you know when I went to the tomb I expected to sense something feel something to be awed by it all and I was Shocked that I didn't I looked in and I saw just a a, a cave hewn out of the rock a place where a body was laying and I didn't feel what I thought I would feel what I thought I should feel and it puzzled me and I prayed and talked to the Lord about it even as we continued walking around the garden and the Lord said that while we're in this body we cannot know Him as He is. If there was something to be obtained by way of spiritual blessing in the, the place where the Lord lay, wouldn't the apostles have organized pilgrimages? But they never did. They never did. We know not the Lord after the flesh, but there's a day coming when we shall see Him face to face. What a glorious thing! What a glorious thing! And that's all because of Calvary. When we look at the Lord of glory, we will be so conscious. I am looking and seeing the fruits. Of my Saviour's dying. Again, the merits of Christ's blood has brought us before God to rejoice. Calvary brought joy into our lives. That's why I pity Roman Catholics. I, I said I hated Popery. I don't hate Roman Catholics. I live amongst them. I see them every day, and I grieve for them because they—they they are very diligent in practicing all the rituals of their church in the hope it's going to do something for them. But there's not a mark of happiness on their face—not a mark. What's the feature of Ireland? What's the feature? and the boys fiddling in a pub and drinking that's that's Ireland and every American president that ever come here has gone down south to take part in such follies that's because there's no joy in their religion they've got to make it all the the top singing stars uh, stars is hardly the right word but we'll employ it all the top singers in Ireland they're all Romanists that's that's the the atmosphere they are brought up in from the very day they're in dancing and singing and playing fiddles and all the rest of it because there's no joy in their religion no joy you look at that video that I mentioned all those boys heading uh, and their, their church of England supposed to be Protestants And they're all going into the shrine and going through whatever rituals they feel are proper. And they're the most miserable bunch. And I guarantee that if you saw them after all the rituals are over, they're in the local pub. That's what they are. And they're testifying as they drink down their pints. We found nothing, you know, in the shrine that brought us any comfort. So we're down here to to drink Guinness. God help us. The things as plain as a pigstaff. The emptiness of man's religion. Whereas the joy that has come to us from Calvary. The joy. Look at, I'll just take this, I'm sure my time is nearly gone. if It hasn't already gone. But look at Genesis 47. And here's one of the pictures I might say that I made reference to or indicated exists in the Bible. Genesis 47 and the verse 7 And Joseph brought in Jacob before his father and set him before Pharaoh. Now I don't need to Emphasize to you that Jacob was a very happy man on that day. He had been grieving for his son Joseph for years. Thinking him dead. Then came the news. Joseph is alive. And that was good. But not only was Joseph alive, but he was the ruler in Egypt. And what's more, he's going to provide for Jacob and all his family Out of the fullness and riches of Egypt. Come down. So this was a happy day. For old Jacob is brought in by Joseph. And presented to Pharaoh. It's a wonderful picture dear child of God. Of what's going to happen to you. One day. The Lord Jesus will take us by the hand. And present us to the Father. It says that jacob blessed pharaoh oh how we'll bless god on that day i will bless him for having loved us from all eternity for having sent his son to die for us at the cross for pouring out his holy spirit by which the benefits of the cross were bestowed upon us and we were strengthened and enabled and guided and brought to heaven. One day there's a day when you will be presented to the Father. And it's all because of Calvary. It's all because of Calvary. Let me go a little further and say that the merits of Christ's blood has raised us up To reign with the Lord. We're going to reign with the Lord. Now there is a sense, there is a sense that when you're saved, you are brought into the victory. You're brought into the victory of Christ. And you get power over things that before reigned over you. We're delivered from many sinful wicked habits, we're delivered from sinful company, we're delivered from filthy talk, we're delivered from filthy thoughts. In every way we become kings over what before ruled over us. Ah, but that's not the end of it. That's not the end of it, my dear friend. In the Old Testament, in Samuel chapter 2, we have the prayer of a wonderful lady. And let me say what I have often said in England. Let ladies pray. Don't let anyone stop you praying. Pray correctly, of course. Pray scripturally and biblically. But God has been pleased to write down the prayers of many women. And they have been a source of of joy and comfort and encouragement. And I love the, the prayer of Hannah. You know, there's some ladies I'm really looking forward to meeting in heaven. I've admired them. They've been a help to me. They have set forth the glories and the virtues and the benefits of the Saviour. Time and time again. And this lady here, Hannah, is one of them. It, it says here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed. Hannah prayed. Now it's worthwhile reading all that prayer, but I leave you to do that. But she says in the verse 8, concerning the Lord. Well, look at verse 7. The Lord maketh poor, and maketh rich, he bringeth low and lifteth up. He raised up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. What a theologian Hannah was! What a knowledge of God's purpose she had! And God has recorded her thoughts. That we might learn. And dear friend, she saw that God took the lowest and the nobodies and the nothings. And he raised them up to make them inherit the throne of glory. The throne of glory. There used to be an old modern song that was on the go when I first was saved. Lord, build me a cabin in the corner of glory land. And rightly we rose up against that and said, what, I'm not going to be in a cabin in the corner of glory land. I'm going to occupy the throne of glory. The throne of glory. There's a humility, you know, that's entirely of the flesh and is anything but humility. And that's what lies at the heart of that silly song. No, there's no pride involved in us expecting to obtain and receive what God has ordained for us, even when that is a throne of glory. I'll press on with one more point on on this heading. The merits of Christ's blood will raise us up in his likeness. I never... Miss an opportunity to have a go at ladies in makeup. There was an old preacher in America who used to say to those who advocated the use of makeup if the barn door needs painting, then paint it. Which was very flattering to any lady who was promoting the cause of makeup. For he was saying, all right, looking at you, you look like a barn door and you could probably benefit from a coat of paint. But it's a worldly fashion. It's a worldly, the only woman in the Bible that employed it was a vile, vile woman, Jezebel. A vile woman. And the only other reference to it, if I'm not mistaken, was in the book of Jeremiah where God says, I don't care how you paint your face, you'll never be reconciled to me because of your sin. But here's the point. The merits of Christ's blood of Calvary is going to raise us out of the dust should we die before the Lord returns. But if we're alive when he returns, we're going to be instantly changed. And we're going to be instantly changed to look like him. To look like him. Psalm 17 verse 15. As for me I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. That should be the desire of us all. And I'm sure if you're saved tonight, that is the desire of of you. We would be like Jesus. Says the hymn. We desire to be like God." We've often prayed. We've often prayed, Lord, make me more like thee. Make me more like thee. In the first epistle of John, you find the same truth set forth. My memory is not what it used to be and I always launch forth in a, a step of faith and I start looking for verses that I used to know uh, very well. Verse uh, chapter 3 of First John Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we shall know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. Like him morally. But I also believe we'll bear a likeness to his form and his beauty. Second Corinthians chapter 3 in the verse 18 but we all there's a verse I I have loved from my earliest days as a Christian when I first came upon it it just taught me so much and I have come to it time and time again 2 Corinthians 3.18 but we all with open face beholding as in a glass that's what the Bible is it's a mirror it reflects the Lord as in at last the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory. That's what happens when you read your Bible. You see Christ and you're made to be like him. It's called sanctification. Changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the spirit of the Lord. God send the spirit amongst us in power again. Producing Christ likeness in our lives at one point and I'll, I'll try to be brief on this one one final one eternity for the believer entails the enjoying of the riches of the cross in the garden of Eden Adam and Eve in the very early Days of their existence there would have enjoyed the fruits that grew in the garden. Enjoyed the fruits. Well, we're going to enjoy for all eternity the fruits of Calvary's tree. I mentioned earlier about the feasting that took place uh, in the Worship of God in the Old Testament. And it's, it's worth noticing that. They weren't tedious, dull rituals. But the whole program, of, of the yearly program of events in which Israel was gathered together to worship the Lord were times of joy and feasting and fellowship. The very highest form of it. You could read Second Chronicles chapter 30 when you have an opportunity when under Hezekiah there was a revival and there was a returning to the worship as God as ordained. And I just want you to notice as you read that chapter that the whole nation was summoned to Jerusalem. That's the first thing. God gathered them all to Jerusalem because that was the center of worship. In the days of Hezekiah it was a long neglected ordinance. Hadn't been done in the same way for a long time. But now they discovered the joys of gathering at God's command. There was a great returning unto the Lord. Look at verses 6 to 9. A humbled people are purged from their idols. There was a purifying of the nation at that time when they returned to the God-ordained paths of worship. There was a cleansing, a pardoning, and a prolonged joy granted to them. Verses 17 to 23. That's That's what Israel could have had all the year long, every year, throughout its existence. If it didn't apostatize and turn away from God. This was what it could have had. And this is what you and I could enjoy. If only we would obey the Lord. And do his bidding. It was a time of perfect security. Because in Exodus chapter 34. The verses 23 and 24. God when he ordained the times of gathering for feasts. He said to Israel. When you're gathered and all the men are gathered in the feast there will not be an enemy will even think of attacking you. I remove from his mind any spirit of animosity and keep you in perfect peace. Exodus the chapter thirty four verses twenty three to twenty four. Oh, there's a lot there for a nation to learn, isn't there? You obey God, God will look after you. That's the truth. That's the truth. A time of perfect security. They feasted upon the king's provisions. Much of what they ate, Hezekiah provided. Verses twenty-four to twenty-seven. Now, this is a sovereign grace Advent testimony meeting, and I'm coming to the end. And I want to tell you that that chapter there in Second Chronicles thirty is a picture of what's going to take place and maybe not too far in the future. The Lord, the King, is going to come back. He's going to gather Israel and they're going to return to the old paths and they're going to enjoy the bounty that Jesus has provided through his death at the cross. God's not finished God's not finished with Israel you only have to turn to the next chapter in Hebrews and there you will find God repeating the covenant he gave to his people in Jeremiah 31 same terms same covenant God hasn't forgotten what he promised Israel and it's going to come to pass one day a lot of people threw that out a lot of people say that God has turned it back on Israel and he's turned to the church. No, that's not how I read Bible. If God has turned his back on Israel, he has broken his promise and how can I trust him? How can I trust him? How can I be sure that what I read in the gospel will come to pass if what God promised to Israel all those years ago has been abandoned? God will not break his promise and what is pictured for us in Chronicles there in the chapter 30 is a picture of a future gathering and out of out of the fountain that has been opened up in the house of David there will flow benefits and blessings to the redeemed, restored, delivered Israel, in the future. May it please the Lord to bless these few stumbling words to your heart, and may you have drawn nearer to the Lord, and may He have drawn nearer to us in our time of fellowship together. Paul, will you lead, please?